May God honor the confession that we have just sung. May that be true of each and every one of us. Thy word is a lamp unto our feet and a guide unto our path. If you believe this, would you open God's word? Open it to the book of Acts, chapter 13. We'll be reading from verse 44 to the end of the chapter. Uh, if you did not bring your Bible with you this morning, uh, we have some Bibles available for you to pick out uh, from the pew in front of you. You may find this passage on page number 922. We are currently going through this series of sermons on the book of Acts, and um, I pray that the Lord blesses your soul and heart um, through this message that we are about to hear as well. I pray that the Lord blesses my own heart. As, uh, as the Lord has blessed it already in the, in the preparation of it this week. But let's, let's open God's word and read it and hear it for our hearts this morning. This is the word of the Lord. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you, since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. Behold, we are tur turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying, I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. But the Jews incited the devout woman of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirred up persecution against Paul and Barnabas, and drove them out of their district. But they shook off the dust from their feet against them and went to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. Amen. This is the word of the Lord for us, for our hearts. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer, asking the Lord once again to speak to us through the word that was just uttered and spoken. Oh, gracious God, we confess that we need your Holy Spirit to enlighten us of the truth of that we, which, which we have just read. Holy Spirit, we pray for our hearts, which often are darkened because of our own sinfulness. And therefore, we often do not understand your word. And often we misinterpret it and misapply it. Oh Lord, we pray that by your Spirit you will prevail over the sinfulness of our hearts and you might enable us to understand that which you have revealed. We pray this for your glory and honor in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, friends, a short passage, but a deep passage. A short passage, but a challenging passage. Today's verses that we've read really belong to, to the passage that was begun last week as we read the sermon that Paul preached uh, to the city of, of Antioch in Pisidia. 
Um, the, this was the, the first stop in the first missionary journey that Paul and Barnabas engaged in. Last week we saw the content of what Saul and, or Paul preached. It was the message of God's salvation through Jesus. The effect of that sermon was so electrifying that the next Sabbath, the next day, time they met together, the whole city gathered. Now, just pause for a moment. The whole city got to hear about what Paul preached the first Sunday. And they were so moved by what they have heard that they all gathered to hear him again. Now, I ask, there's no Facebook. There's no Twitter. There's no social media. Who got the word out? Those who were there the first Sunday or Saturday. It was them that started talking about this new teaching that, that they heard the previous day in, in, in the synagogue. And they said, come and hear. I wonder if you had been there. I wonder if you would have contributed to the spread of the word and asking people to come and hear. I wonder. Well, they gathered the next Saturday, the next Sabbath. But there's a bit of a turn in reactions. There's a bit of a, of a, of a reaction, of a surprise in the reaction of the Jews. Look at, at verse 45. We are told of an unexpected turn. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Now, this is a rather unusual, unexpected reaction. The Jews who had been addressed the previous Sabbath heard how God had fulfilled the promises in the Old Testament through Jesus, and now they react and they reject the message. Why? Not because they were convinced it wasn't true, but because they became jealous. Look at verse 45 again. When the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul. Now keep this jealousy in mind. Put it on hold for a second until later in the sermon. This will be important. As a result, Paul tells them that he is turning his message to the Gentiles because God commanded him to be a light to the Gentiles, to the nations. And Paul quotes a famous prophecy from the book of Isaiah, chapter 49, verse 6. And so in verse 48, we see the reaction of the Gentiles. When the Gentiles hear what Paul is about to do, namely to turn his attention to the nations, look at what they do, the Gentiles. When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. Praise God. Praise God that the word of the Lord is turning also to the Gentiles. So far, so good. Until we get to the end of verse 48. The last phrase of verse 48. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Ooh, what does this mean? Luke is narrating the story Luke is narrating this story, could have simply said, and many of the Gentiles believed. 
But that's not what it says, does it? Look in your scripture. Look more carefully. Verse 48, how it ends. It says, And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Friends, this is one of the several verses in scripture that points clearly, without a shadow of a doubt, to the doctrine of God's election. The fact that Luke doesn't pause to explain it might be a hint that it was already known. He was accepted. He didn't have to talk much about it because it was accepted. But today, the doctrine of God's election is not accepted. It is, quite the contrary, greatly misunderstood and therefore abused. And therefore, it is neglected. And therefore, it is misapplied. And yet, the doctrine of God's election is one of the great proofs of God's unmerited grace. So today, I want to talk to you about it because it's here in God's Word. I, I love Spurgeon uh, who once addressed preachers who were afraid of preaching on the doctrine of God's election. And uh, he addressed these preachers who were afraid to preach on it because they thought it was dangerous. <laughs> to which Spurgeon replied, What? God's truth? Dangerous? I should not like to stand in your shoes when you have to face your maker on the day of judgment after such an utterance as that, said Spurgeon. So we're going to talk today about the doctrine of God's election. And by the way, just a reminder, if we go back to the beginning of chapter 13, well, to the beginning of Paul's sermon, somewhere in verse 17, when he started the story of Israel, what did Paul start with? He started by recounting God's election of Israel. Look at verse 17. The God of this people Israel chose our fathers. There's nothing Abraham did that made him worthy of being chosen by God. And now in verse 48, we're told that those appointed to eternal life believed the message that Paul taught. So let's, let's talk about this. What, what does this mean? How can we talk about God's election and how does that square with human responsibility, especially in the work of salvation? So before we get into inquiring about God's election, first I want to make sure we understand what this doctrine means. Then we will look at what the doctrine of election does not do. And then we will look at what the doctrine of election does for us. So what it means, what it does not do, and what it does. Here's what it means. Look at verse 48. Notice what exactly it says about who are the people who believed. It was those who were appointed to eternal life. Now the tense of the verb appointed is past perfect or, per, or perfect in the past, meaning that it's an act of appointment that happened prior to the act of belief. The appointment happened before the believing. Now, who appointed them? Who appointed them? Even though the passage doesn't tell us exactly, specifically who it was, the passive voice means that those who believed were appointed by someone else other than themselves. That's why it's a passive voice. 
So it's in the past. They have been or had been appointed or simply were appointed, and they were appointed by someone else. Now, who is it that appointed them? Who has the authority in this universe to decree that certain people should be appointed to eternal life? Only the maker of the universe. The one who made us has that right. His name is God, the Father of Jesus Christ. Now, some people have defined the doctrine of election as um, encompassing God's people in general as a general category. In this view, God doesn't elect individuals, but he has elected his people as a whole or his church so that those who become part of God's people are also elected. But the election is of this broad category of God's people in general. That's one way people have understood the doctrine of election. Another suggestion that has been made, and initially by a Swiss theologian by the name of Karl Barth, claimed that God's election was only of Jesus Christ. God only elected Jesus. And anyone who unites himself to Jesus is going to be a co-heir or co-heir with all the benefits of Jesus, and therefore he will be a co-heir of God's election. But in this passage, God's election or appointment is not applied only to Christ or only to people, to God's people in general, but it is applied to specific people who actually believed. Look at what it says. Those appointed to eternal life, those believed. Sometimes people, cannot, people who cannot accept the doctrine of God's election work around it by saying that God elected those whom he knew that would believe. So God's election is really, God, in order for God to elect, he's first looking into the future because he's able to do so. He figures out who's going to choose him. And because he knows that, now he's going to elect them. Well, besides the, the fact that that explanation is against what this passage says, those who think that and who give that explanation also forget that faith and repentance are a gift of God. God doesn't need to look forward into the future to know who's going to have faith and repentance. God gives it to them. So, so that explanation doesn't really, is not satisfactory. Back to this passage, it's quite clear that as many as were appointed ahead of time to eternal life, they are the ones who believed. So that God's election is not based on what man does. God's election is unconditional on what man does. That's why some people call it unconditional election. So the doctrine of election means simply that it is God who elects. He has elected individuals and he has elected prior to the human action of believing. Now, why do people have a hard time with this doctrine? Why are people afraid of it? Why are people scared of it? Well, there are many reasons, but at least one of them is that it gives the impression that man is no longer responsible. If God is ultimately in control, then man is no longer responsible, they would say. But let's go back to this passage and see how Paul 
does not give up the truth that man is still responsible. Before speaking about God's election, Paul described the response of the Jews as being their own action. Look at verse 46. Paul said to them, Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. That's how Paul describes these Jews who are rejecting the message. These Jewish leaders responded willfully. No one pressured them from the outside. It was their own jealousy that led them to this reaction. Now think about jealousy. It's something that you have. It's something that stirs up inside of you. Scripture is very clear that both man's responsibility and God's sovereignty are real and are ultimate facts. Again, quoting um, Charles Spurgeon, when he was asked if he could reconcile these two truths of man's responsibility and God's sovereignty, his answer was, I wouldn't try to reconcile them. I never reconcile friends. The true truths of God's sovereignty and man's responsibility are not at odds with each other. They're not enemies. In the words of, of J.I. Packer, they're not even uneasy neighbors. They're not on, in an endless state of cold war with, with each other. They are friends, and they work together. So we've considered the meaning of the doctrine of election. Let's look at what election does not do. Let's make sure we don't uh, misunderstand what election is not doing. First of all, and I'm going to give you a number of, of things that it does not do. First of all, God's election does not cancel man's responsibility. Let's be very clear about that. Man is held responsible for all his actions. On the day of judgment, God will judge us according to what we have done while we were in this physical body. Nobody on the day of judgment will be able to come and tell the Lord, God, I came to you, I sought you with all my heart, but you rejected me. Friends, no one, no one will ever be able to say that. Listen to Jesus in John 6. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Believe the words of Jesus. Anyone who comes to me, I will never cast out. The last judgment will prove that men will go to hell not because of lack of being God's elect, but because of their unwillingness to come to Christ. Again, J.I. Packer said, God gives people what they choose not the opposite of what they choose. There are people who take false comfort in God's election. Those who are believers or pretend to be believers and say, okay, if I'm God's elect, it's a done deal. You know, I, I, if I sin, I can go on sinning. And, and there are folks who, who use God's election in order to excuse their sinning. And they take their response to Christ very, very lightly and superficially but friends, those who are elected by God will display it by a heart that surrenders to the Lord. Those who are elected by God will show it by the fact that they will walk in the sanctification to which God has chosen them to walk into. 
So friends, be, be cautious. Just because we believe in God's doctrine of election doesn't make man less responsible or irresponsible. doesn't cancel man's responsibility. Second of all, God's election does not cancel out our duty to evangelize. God's election does not cancel out our duty to evangelize. The reason why the Gentiles were able to believe in this passage was not simply because God had appointed them, although that's true. The only reason they were able to believe in this passage is also because Paul had just spoken the gospel to them. There's nothing to believe if there's no gospel. There's nothing to believe if there's no gospel. Paul said in Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing comes by the word of Christ. In other words, no man can be saved without the gospel. The gospel message is offered to all people so that, as Romans says, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. These are true promises. God's election does not cancel out our duty to evangelize. God's election does not cancel out man's duty to repent and turn to the Lord. Jesus said, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The call to come to Jesus is real. The offer of salvation is real. God sends us his messengers to be ambassadors for Christ to plead with people. And just like Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians, we are called to plead with people to, to be reconciled with God. Why would God send his messengers to proclaim the gospel and to plead with people to be reconciled with God if they don't have a duty to do so? Let's be very clear. We have a duty to evangelize and those who hear us, sinners, have a duty to repent and turn to the Lord. Jesus said in the Gospel of Luke 13, unless you repent, you will all perish. There is no other way to salvation but through repentance and faith and turning to the Lord. Jesus said to, to Jerusalem as he came in that last week before his crucifixion, how often would I have gathered your children together and you would not? They have turned down. They have rejected the call of Jesus. They were guilty for refusing to turn to the Lord. So whatever you believe about the doctrine of election, be sure of this, the doctrine of election does not cancel man's duty to repent and turn to the Lord. A fourth thing that the doctrine of election does not do, it does not cancel out man's freedom. Jesus spoke to the Jewish leaders who opposed him in the book of John, chapter 8. He said, you are of your father, the devil, and your will is to do your father's desires. Did you get that? These Jewish leaders acted freely, willfully. Why did they use their actions against Jesus? 
in that particular way? Their will, he said, your will, not someone else's. It's not a coerced will. It's your will. It's to do your father's desires. It was because their father was the devil. That's why. This points out that the word freedom is actually often misunderstood by us. We think of freedom in such a, such a superficial way, in such a, an absolute way, and, and yet we all know that in an absolute way, no one is free. Let's, let's think of freedom as the ability to do whatever you want, right? Would that be a, a definition you would, you would start off with? Freedom, our freedom is the ability to do whatever we want. And therefore, because we can do whatever we want, we're free. Well, let's, let's work with this definition as superficial as it is. Let's work with it a little more. Can you walk upside down? No. Can, can you step off of a bridge and not fall off without some, having some other assistance? No. Can you walk on water? No. Thank you. Can you raise someone else from the dead? So are you free? We think of freedom as the ability to do whatever we want, given our limitations. Given the natural limitations, given situations around us, given that we are still humans. So in a sense, I can agree with you, we are all free. If you can qualify that freedom by saying, given our natural limitations, that we are still humans. If that's how we understand freedom in this, in this qualified way, then it is indeed a biblical way of understanding freedom. So when we apply this, this freedom to our spiritual reality, to our spiritual lives, yes, we're free to do whatever we want. The only problem is that our desires and our wants have been tainted by sin, by our corrupt nature, so that in our own corrupt nature, there's no one who's seeking after God, not even one. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him. And he's unable to understand them because they're spiritually discerned. So that our actions are free because, them, because we do them voluntarily. Yet our desires are tainted by sin, and sin never wants to yield to God. Never. Ephesians 2, Paul says that we are dead in our sins. And more so, Paul says that man in his sinful state is actually willingly following the spirit that is at now at work in the sons of disobedience. So that man in his sinful state, in his sinful nature, is never in a neutral stand towards God. Never. Whatever he chooses, he chooses freely but he will always choose it in opposition to God because that's his limitation. 
That's his natural limitation. In this sense, sinners are enslaved to sin. Even though they act willingly and freely, our freedom is bound to our sinful limitations. That's why some people choose to call it, we're, we have, we're bonded, we're in bondage. Yes, we're free to do whatever we want, but it is only to act sinfully because that's our nature. God's election does not make man's actions any less free. We act willingly. Actually, when God moves by His Spirit in our hearts to break the bondage of sin, it is only then that He's finally able to make us free. It is only when we come to know the Lord Jesus that we experience a greater freedom than we've ever, ever had before. That's what God's election does for us. It actually enables us to experience God's freedom. But be, be sure, God's election does not cancel out man's ability to act freely in his limitations. Now, what does God's election do? Why should we care for God's election? Why this, is this truth important for us? You know, God could have revealed everything to us about godliness and salvation without revealing to us the doctrine of election. You know, he, could, he could have just surprised us in eternity and say, guys, in reality, I was working all along to bring you home to me. God could have kept that secret for, for, from us until we actually will be glorified and see it for what it will be, because that's what it will be. But once in a while, in a few places in Scripture, God gives us these windows. Why? Why is He giving us small windows of God's election? Here's a few reasons what God's election does to us when we believe it, as the Bible teaches us, teaches it. The first one is that the doctrine of God's election increases our humility. It increases our humility. There's nothing in all of God's truth that brings home more clearly that our salvation is God's act before it is ours. That means God didn't pick you because he found something more valuable in you than in your neighbor. There's nothing in you more valuable that would make God choose you versus someone else. So drop all foundations, all reasons of pride or thinking that somehow there's something in you that actually triggered God's choice of you. It's totally by His will and mercy. Friend, if you are proud of your election or if, if God's election leads you to any sense of pride, you have misunderstood God's election. I love, again, Spurgeon is huge on this. If you want to be humbled, if you want to be humbled, Study election, for it will make you humble under the influence of God's Spirit. Later he said, one of the most blessed effects of election is that it helps us to humble ourselves before God. And alongside with this humility comes a spirit of absolute gratitude to God. Because our salvation is not a, a dealing which God does his part. We, God brings his part to the deal, and we bring ours to the deal. No, God does it in entirety. 
you're not coming into this partnership by bringing anything but your sin. Get that. Therefore, we're both humbled and brought to our knees to be full of gratitude for what God has done. Second of all, what the doctrine of God's election does is that it gives us hope in our evangelism. It gives us hope in our evangelism. If God was not electing people, no one would ever come to Christ. No one. No one. Why is this so? Because of man's depravity and sin. Romans 8, 7 and 8, the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 2 Corinthians 4, 4, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ. It's not just man's rebellious nature that opposes God, but Satan's spell of blindness that keeps people away from seeing the light of the gospel. Now, I ask you, dear friends, do any of us have the ability to break the power of Satan in blinding people's eyes? Can we actually persuade anyone to see themselves as sinners who offended the greatest omnipotent God of this universe? Now, we, we might be able to, to talk some people into experiencing some human-centered or human-generated guilt, but we'll never be able to bring them to experience the divine guilt. Only God can reveal this truth and this experience to them by bringing this conviction through the Holy Spirit as a result of the preaching of the gospel. Friend, if, if any of you are here this morning and you're not a Christian and you're hearing this truth about God's election, if you're not a Christian, I want to encourage you, be glad that God's election is a real fact. You'll say, how so? If he was not, there's n there would be no hope for you ever to come to him. Some of you may say, well, hold on. What if, what if I want to come to Jesus? But, but what if I'm not elect? Can, can, I, can I really come to Jesus if I'm not elect? Oh, friend, if you desire to come to Jesus, Jesus will receive you today right here. If, if, if your heart is truly asking this question, I would like to come to Jesus, but will he receive me? Because I don't know if I'm part of the elect. Oh, he will receive you. Because if you have that de desire in your heart, that is a proof that you're elect. Now, if you say, I might be interested to come in to Jesus, but I don't really want to, and this whole thing of God's election, if he hasn't elected me, I'm not going to come to him anyway. Oh, don't you dare to say that. Don't you dare to say that. You're fooling yourself. You don't want God's election, and now you're, you're actually attacking God's wisdom for electing some? Friends, God's wisdom is amazingly good. We may not understand it in its fullness, but He is powerfully and beautifully wise. If you desire to know Jesus, he will not turn you away. If you'd like to know more of this salvation, I would love to talk to you at the end of the service. But friends, be clear of this. If God is tugging you in your heart, and if there's a desire in you to seek after God, 
It is the work of God pulling you to him. Praise God. Be glad that God elects. Otherwise, you would not be here this morning seeking after God. The doctrine of election for those of us who are preaching the gospel gives us hope that what we're called to do day in and day out will not fail. It is not hopeless. When you open your mouth to speak about Jesus, the only hope you have is that God may have elected some. And those whom he has elected will hear his word. And those who will hear his word will come. It is inevitable. Paul was about to leave Corinth because of the difficulties he's had. And God says to him in a vision at night, don't leave because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed there for another year and a half and had an incredibly fruitful ministry. Doctrine of election gives us hope in our evangelism. The doctrine of election gives us boldness in our evangelism. What could give Paul boldness as he spoke to deaf ears? What could give him boldness as he presented God's truth to eyes that were blind, to hearts that were stoned? Why would Paul be willing to endure imprisonment and chains to preach the gospel? He said in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 9 and 10, But the word of God is not bound. Paul was bound, but he says, But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect, that they also may obtain salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. The doctrine of election gave Paul boldness to persevere in preaching the gospel even when he was in prison because he knew that his gospel preaching will not be fruitless. The doctrine of election gives us patience in our evangelism. It doesn't just give us boldness. It doesn't just give us hope. It gives us patience in our evangelism. How many times do you feel discouraged that you've preached the gospel to someone for so many times and, and there's no answer and you feel like giving up? Or there, there is an answer, but it's not the answer you want to, to hear. It's irritation or rejection. And, and you want to walk away and you want to give up. Friends, don't give up. The, gospel, the doctrine of God's election encourages us to persevere and be patient. John sa Jesus said in John 6, No one comes to the Father unless the Father who sent me draws him. Years ago, a friend of mine picked me from, a, uh, from the airport as I was flying into Romania for a mission trip. I haven't seen this friend for um, a few years and when I saw him, his face was glowing, and he said, What's new? You seem very excited. And he said, Yes, I am. My father received the Lord recently. I said, That's great. Praise God. And then he said, I had prayed for him 25 years. Those whom the Father draws to himself will come. They may not come on our timing. It may be a long time. God's promises, oftentimes, God doesn't deliver right away. Think of Abraham. It took 25 years before God fulfilled his promise to Abraham. The doctrine of God's election gives us patience in our evangelism. Keep proclaiming Christ even when the results are few. People might be going through a season of, of no results. You say, what's wrong? Well, something could be wrong, but if they're faithfully preaching the word, 
Nothing might be wrong. It's simply God's plan of not bringing about the fruit right away. Be patient in evangelism. Continue to persevere in it, even when there's no fruit. The doctrine of God's election gives fuel to our prayer for evangelism. It gives fuel to our prayer for evangelism. For many people, when they think of God's sovereignty, they immediately assume that if God already has it figured out, why do I need to pray? Prayer is pointless. If God has already made up His mind or made up His plans, the only problem with that explanation is that part of God's plan is that people would pray. You see, God doesn't just foreordain the destination, but also the means. That's why no one will be saved on election only. They will be saved through the gospel being preached to them and through prayer. God ordains not just the end, but the means. So what's amazing when we look at the Apostle Paul who preached this gospel of God's election is that he's the one apostle in all the New Testament who asks for more prayer than anybody else for his preaching. Now why would this preacher of God's election ask for prayer so that the truth that he proclaims might be fruitful? It's because this is God's plan. God so designed it that it's both the preaching of the gospel and the prayer for fruitfulness that will be the means by which God will bring about his chosen race. Because Paul knew that God's plan included both prayer and the word. These are two key means for God to accomplish his purposes. Before God will give fruit to our labors, dear friends, he wants us to give focus to praying. We will not experience fruitless, fruitfulness in evangelism to, prior to fruitfulness in our praying until God pours out a new spirit of supplication on our evangelistic work. That's why it's amazing that in most revivals, prior to God pouring out great results upon the church, there was an increasingly amazing focus on prayer. People were praying. So when I call you to pray, I'm simply calling to the means that God ordained to bring about the results which, we, which He has decreed from long ago. If we want to see God's truth and plans happen, let's walk in the ways that He designed for that. Let's learn from Paul that God's sovereignty and salvation should not encourage us to be negligent in praying or to be superficial in praying and just do quick prayers and say, well, I've, I've done my praying. I just need to be quiet and wait for it. Continue to pray. Continue to pray. Be earnest in it. The doctrine of God's election does a final thing for us. It gives us joy. Joy in our evangelism. Did you notice how our passage ends? They are kicked out of the district, Paul and Barnabas. But despite their rejection, despite being cast out, we're told that they were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. How can you be joyful when you're kicked out? And by the way, we don't know if there were many who received the Lord in Antioch or few. We don't know if there were two people or 2,000. We just don't know. But here they are, no longer able to preach the word in that region, and they rejoice. Why? Because whether the results are small or great, you rejoice in the fact that the, you're doing the work of the Lord. 
and God is responsible for the results. So friends, far from being a dangerous doctrine, the truth of God's election was revealed to us in Scripture to assure God's people that God is ultimately in control and that it is our duty to proclaim Christ and it is our responsibility to make Him known. It is our duty to respond to Him. God's election does not cancel our responsibility. It assures us that God is in control. God's plans will come about. I pray that it will be a blessing and assurance to your own heart to know that you cannot ultimately act against God's ultimate purposes. Even those who reject God, they're not acting against God ultimately. We're all under God's ultimate care and loving hand. And His wisdom, which we do not understand fully, we can trust because He's ultimately and eternally good. Would you pray with me? Gracious Father, we praise Your name because You reveal to us not only what You call us to do, You reveal to us not only Your laws that make us responsible and put on us a duty of turning to You and following You, but Father, thank You that You reveal to us the truth that all along it is You who work in us to accomplish what You command us to do. Oh, Lord, we pray that we might continue to be humbled, encouraged, bolstered, edified, and made joyful in our own spiritual journey by the truth of your election. May this truth continue to encourage us. May this truth continue to give us peace even when we feel frail and unable and failing. Father, we pray that you would do your work among us. And you know, we know that you will, because this is your plan. In the name of Christ, we pray. Amen.